Thank you guys so much. I'll tell you what, why don't we do this? You guys have incredible pastors and Pastor Chris and Pastor Megan. Could we give them a hand tonight? You guys are rocking it out in Eunice. It's awesome. I'm hearing great things, and I'm actually really jealous because Pastor Chris went to the Grow Conference, and when we were going to go, they were already sold out, and he said, why don't you stay and I'll go, and that just hurt my feelings a lot. I wanted to go, I, uh, but we, uh, we love that church. We love this, uh, this church. We, we uh, talked for probably an hour, hour and a half last year at the Empowerment Conference there in Houston, Texas, got to know him a little bit. And um, just loving what you guys are doing in this community. We're looking at some of the things that y'all did just this last weekend with the health fair. Y'all are amazing. Give yourselves a hand for that. 150 people serving your community. Five people coming to know Jesus. That's a big deal, right? That is a huge deal. And I'm proud of you guys. And, and uh, just I'm honored to be here tonight. Very thankful. Uh, my name is John Ashcraft, and this is my wife, Amy. If you would, just kind of wave at everybody. And uh, we are on staff at a church in Houston, Texas. We're actually in one of the campuses in Pasadena. And uh, Travis and Elizabeth Rougeau, you guys know them well, I know. And uh, they don't come to our church. Hurts our feelings. So I don't know, I don't know what the problem is, but they stay at the church in Houston. Uh, we've talked to them a little bit about that tonight, but they won't come over there. Uh, but we're just thankful to be here and uh, thankful for Pastor Chris's trust in me to speak to you guys tonight about uh, the concept of second mile, and uh, just a little bit about myself and my wife before I get started into that, that topic. I was raised in a Pentecostal holiness church. Does anybody know what I'm talking about in this room tonight? A few of you. Um, it's not just a Pentecostal church. It's a Pentecostal holiness church, and that is like it ups the ante completely. Here's some of the things that we couldn't do. Like, I couldn't have this kind of scruff. You know, you got to shave. Men can't have beards. Um, you couldn't wear short sleeve shirts. Uh, you couldn't wear short pants. I don't know what the deal is with short sleeve shirts. I told a friend of mine that I worked with one time that in the church that I was that I grew up in that I couldn't wear short sleeve shirts. He thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Every time we were working together, we were going into a restaurant. He would ask me to flash my elbows to the waitress to try to get a discount. I don't know. I guess there's something super sexy about elbows. We had to cover them up in that church. But uh, I was I was of the opinion. Nobody ever said this, but I was of the opinion that. Pretty much if you had a bad thought or if you said a bad word, like if you drove your car off a cliff, you're right, and you're living for Jesus, you're doing everything right that you can do, and you drive your car off a cliff and you let a bad word slip out right before you crash into the rocks at the bottom, you're going to go to hell. Does anybody ever remember that? And I was terrified all the time. And, uh, but I wasn't scared enough. So here's the thing. I would get really scared in the summer because I was away from my friends at school, and we would have revival services. Anybody remember revival services? I mean... The preacher would preach you right in the pits of hell. You could feel the flames, you know. You would wait. You would run to the altar. I was so scared. So I would get saved in the summer. About two weeks into school, I'd be right back into my old habits because I didn't really love God from my heart. I just was afraid to go to hell. But I was also afraid of my friends, and I wanted to impress them, so I'd try to outcuss them and outsend them and everything. About two weeks into school, I was doing the same that I was. So what I tell people is this, is that my hobby growing up was to get saved. I would do it every summer at the revival. That's, that was my thing. And uh, my mom really wanted me to go to heaven, so she scheduled me to get baptized, and I wasn't saved. We actually, uh, my sister and my brother-in-law, they're the pastors of the church there in Houston, Texas, CT Church. They were in southwest Arkansas at the time. I was going to visit them for the summer. It's 14 years old, and I'm, I'm going down there to visit them. They're going to baptize me on Sunday, and 
I'm not even saved. I'm not living for Jesus. I'm about as far from God as I possibly can be. And they had a revival service, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get baptized. Might as well get saved. So I did. So I got saved, and then I got baptized uh, that Sunday night. And actually, something took hold in my heart that year. Something significant changed. And uh, when I went back to uh, our home church, something awakened in me, and I started having this desperate cry in my heart to give my life to the church. I wanted to give my life for God and His kingdom and building the church and really helping people come to know Jesus. I mean, I was praying for my friends at school. It actually stuck. I mean, you'd be proud of me. Like two weeks into school, I'm still serving God. And uh, I became a missionary pretty much at my school. We, we did the drama Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, you know, and I was outside praying, Jesus, save them, Jesus, save them. And I remember that I just had this burning desire in me that I just have to give my life to this. And so I did. I mean, I begged God to let me into the ministry, and he did. And um, I married Amy, and uh, she was married to, my father-in-law was the pastor of the church. And so uh, she was determined that she would marry a man who was not going to be in the ministry like her father. And so I married her, and then we went into the ministry. Um, so that didn't work out very well for her. She did not choose wisely at all. But we went into the ministry, and um, we also had an awesome family as a part of that. In fact, we got a picture here, I think. This is my family. Uh, that's all my kids and my wife there and some creepy old dude is on the left side of the screen. I don't know who that is. Um, they said that the camera adds 20 pounds. It looks to me like it adds 20 years. I don't know what that's all about. So that's, that's just, that's how we do family photos. It's just a selfie. Uh, my wife is begging us to have an actual family photo. But we got a picture of just the kids here too. And uh, yeah good-looking kids, and the cool thing about this is our testimony, and it's really awesome that every single one of our kids are in our church. They love God. They're serving. Our two oldest ones feel called into full-time ministry, as does our youngest. She feels called to be a, uh, a missionary. She's the brightest, the one on the left. She's the brightest of all of them. She's the smartest of all of them, and she's going to spend her life on the missions field. Now, I thought that was going to be our retirement plan. I'm really frustrated about that. The one... The one on the, in the black on the right there, she just wants to be a mom. So she's looking for a really rich person to marry because that's our part of our retirement plan. So if you all know anybody, just let us know. But uh, we started out, you can take that down. We started out serving God in ministry. And I loved what I was doing, but I was frustrated with the state of the church. And I just couldn't understand what the disconnect was with people in the church. Now, I know that that's not the case in this church, and it's not the case with a lot of churches across the United States, but it was my experience. I'm like, what is the deal with Christians? I mean, what is the deal with, with people not wanting to serve? Um, and, then, and then my father-in-law really spent, he spent almost a year just teaching about what the church was in the world, who we were to be, what God had called us to be in the world. And I really began to understand what it was that God wanted to do with us and through us as the body of Christ on the earth. And so when I came to Houston, Texas, and it was, this is the first church that we've really led as, as uh, point people, we've always been kind of the, the number two slot on every team that we've served on. And when I came to Houston, Texas, I needed a way to just kind of put into language how I saw the church because I, I wanted to run in a particular direction and I wanted to make sure that the people that were with us were following us that direction and they knew the picture that I was trying to paint. And so what we did is we developed a series of teaching called Second Mile Leadership. 
And um, I just put them together. They were just kind of some random things that were about how I saw the church and what I believe that Jesus intended for us to be uh, when he left the church on the earth. And then our lead pastor, Pastor Don Norton, said, what were you doing with that second mile stuff? He got a hold of it. He said, man, this is great. You need to turn it into a book. And so my boss is making me write a book. I mean, it's just terrible. So it's actually going to be out in September. It's, uh, we're turning it into a book. It's going to be released at the Empowerment Conference. And Pastor Chris asked me if I would just come and kind of lay the groundwork. He's talked about this concept, I think, with you guys some. He asked me if I would lay the groundwork, and I'm listening to what you guys are already doing. I'm, th- I'm thinking, Do you, are you sure you need me? Because I think I'm preaching to the choir tonight. You guys are awesome. But let me just, uh, let me intro some stuff. We'll talk about it a little bit. And I just want to lay, uh, there's 16 lessons in this course, 16 chapters in the book. And I just want to talk to you about the first chapter tonight, which just kind of lays the foundation for everything that Second Mile is all about. The concept comes from Matthew chapter 5. The concept comes from Matthew chapter 5. You guys are familiar with this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. Jesus says this, that if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it how many? Two miles. Now, understand what is going on in this verse. First of all, Jesus has just started his keynote address his Sermon on the Mount, things are going really well. He's talking about blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, we're like, we're, this is one of those Pentecostal shouting messages, right? Great blessings are coming to you if you follow Jesus. And it starts getting harder the further he goes. He's like, love your enemies. And like, whoa, time out, this guy. We don't want to talk about this stuff. And he gets into this verse and he says something that may not necessarily mean something to you and me. Let me set the stage for what this, this verse is actually talking about. And some of you, you probably already know this. But... In the day that Jesus appeared on the scene, and he was showing up to talk to this this group of people that would be his disciples, Rome had occupied Israel. And they resented the fact that Rome was there. I mean, think of it like this. Think of a foreign nation coming in and occupying Eunice, Texas, or Eunice, Louisiana. I'm stuck in Texas. Eunice, Louisiana, and actually the entire nation stripping us of our freedoms, taking all of our jobs basically making us their slaves and, and commanding us to do whatever they want us to do, having that ability. All of our rights are gone. All of our liberties are gone. All of our careers are gone. They are taking over. How many of you guys would resent that? I mean, I just honestly, I would want to find a gun somewhere, and let's see if we can go to war. We'll do our best, or we'll die trying, right? Give me liberty or give me death. So here's the thing. This is the state of Israel in this time. They hated Rome. They hated their occupation. And they believed that a Messiah was coming and he was going to throw off the government that was oppressing them. So they missed Jesus because they were looking for a conquering king. And so Jesus is talking about a particular situation that is happening in that that community right now. And here's what it is. The Romans had the right by law to take any uh, Jew and conscript them into service without any notice, any warning, any consideration with what was going on during their day. Like they got plans, they were headed to Walmart, didn't matter. Roman soldier needed their help, and here's what he could do. He could say, I want you to carry my bag a mile. Doesn't matter that if it was in the opposite direction. Didn't matter what they had plans to do. In that moment, they had no right whatsoever. All they could do was be obedient to the command to pick up that gear and carry it a mile. And they hated it. They despised them, as would I. And the mile in that day was measured in steps, 1,000 steps. And the Jews in that day would count their steps precisely. And at 1,000 steps would drop the pack 
on the ground and happily go away and do what they wanted to do with the rest of their life. And in this scenario of this verse, what Jesus says to them, hey guys, you know that situation that you resent. You know the people that you don't like at all. You don't like serving them. You don't like being under their rule and under their control. When a soldier asks you to go with him a mile, double it. Do double what is forced upon you. Do double is what, what is required. Because here's the thing. What Jesus knew was this. Jesus knew that impact comes when we exceed expectations. Have you ever noticed that in our society, once programs and once situations become expected, people are no longer grateful? If you expect good service at a restaurant and somebody gives you good service at a restaurant, you typically aren't grateful. In fact, if, you don't ha- if they set the bar high and you go in there with a friend of yours and you say, man, they serve us really well at this restaurant and they don't do an awesome job, you're not only ungrateful, you complain. Why? Because your expectation level has been set. And Jesus said this, they expect you to drop the pack at a thousand paces. But here's what I want you to do. Because you're following me, I want you to double what they ask. Because impact comes when we exceed expectations. And this is why the early church had so much impact. In, in Rome, the, the husband or the father of a child could simply give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to say whether or not the baby that his wife just had got to live or die. We throw babies outside the city. And the Christians in that day, because they believed so much in the value of life, would go and take a baby that did not belong to them into their home and raise it at their own expense. Which, by the way, the church needs to stop just being anti-abortion. It needs to be pro-adoption. There needs to be something that changes in us to where we say we're willing to go the extra mile. We're willing to go the second mile. They put their lives where it counted. They went and picked up the baby. In fact, one of the issues that they had was because people didn't understand how disease was transmitted. People in that day would be so fearful of someone that was a loved one that was sick or dying that they would just abandon them. The Romans, the Greeks, they would just leave their family because they were afraid that they were going to get sick too and that they were going to die. And they would abandon them. And so what would happen is the sick would simply be left alone to die. And the bodies of the dead would be piled up and not even buried because people were so afraid. But Christians who believed that this life isn't the end of everything, that there's an eternity coming, would go and put their own health at risk to take care of the sick and the dead. They would bury the dead. They would take the sick into their own homes, exposing their own family to potential disease. It's crazy. As, as Nick Cavanaugh, he's a guy on staff with me. He's an executive pastor. He's crazy. He's an evangelist. And he said, man, you can't threaten a Christian with heaven, right? I mean, you tell me you're going to kill me, it's fine. You can't threaten a Christian with heaven, that's okay. And he said, here's the thing. We don't care. And here's how big of an impact that it made. One of the guys who was a ruler in that time, his name was Emperor Julian. He was, well, first name probably wasn't emperor, but he was the Emperor Julian. And he was frustrated about how powerful the Christians were in their society. And he's like, guys, we have to do something about this. They're doing a better job at all social work. They're doing a better job at changing our nation. We can't get any traction to get people to follow our gods because they had their own gods, right? And so they call Christians, excuse me, they call Christians atheists because they didn't believe in their own gods. 
And he said, these guys are causing all of our people to abandon their faith in our gods and follow this Jesus, and we've got to do something about it. Listen to what he said. He's frustrated. He writes a letter to one of his guys. Watch what he says. This is what happens when we walk the second mile. You ready? Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism? I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. For it is disgraceful when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. What was happening? Christians knew how to walk the second mile. They were second mile leaders. They went above and beyond. They served people that didn't even believe what they believed. And as a result, people were turning from the Roman gods and following the true God, Jesus Christ. And I believe in order for us to have the type of impact that we need in our nation, the church is going to have to rise up and be the type of people that are willing to walk the second mile. We're willing to be second mile leaders. And he said, we can't win against people who serve and love like this. And so this is the clue that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5. He says this about second mile leaders. He doesn't use the term, but he says this. Second mile leaders excel at exceeding expectations. And that's what Pastor Chris is already teaching you guys. That's what you guys are already learning. That's why last year you had 102 volunteers. This year you had 150 volunteers. You served 700 people. That's crazy. You gave over 300 backpacks. That's amazing. You guys are having an impact because you're learning about being second mile leaders. But how many of you know that in the church as a whole, and maybe even in this church as a whole, I don't know, but the norm is not the second mile, is it? It's not the second mile. How many of you know that people call or don't call and just don't show up on Sunday morning to serve their nursery schedule? That's not ever happened here, I'm sure. Right? Just no call, no show. You know, why are you in the back worshiping? Aren't you supposed to be in children's church? Oh, man, I, I called in sick today. I don't understand. The church commitment off to the side rather than the center of our universe. What is up with that? It's because we don't understand what Jesus called us to. Why? Because we have people that don't understand what it means to be second mile leaders. And here's the reason that I believe, and this is what we're going to get to move to right now, is because I, don't be I believe that we just don't understand what Jesus really meant to leave on the earth when he left. We don't understand the full implications of what he meant for us to be. To have the impact of the early church, we have to learn the principles of the second mile. And so tonight, we're just going to be able to lay a quick foundation and, uh, and that's all we're going to be able to do, just kind of just scratch the surface on this tonight. So let's dig into this. How many of you guys love your church? A little feedback. Y'all love it? How many of you guys tell people about your church? Anybody telling people about your church? All right. So give me some feedback. So if you tell somebody about your church and where you're located and all that, how, how do you tell them where your church is? Somebody tell me, where, where is your church? It's... That's good, that's good. Somebody else, shout it out. Now, would you tell me how to get here? Like, I drove in tonight, and I had to follow uh, Joe and Debbie, and I was like, I don't have any clue where I'm going. Somebody, somebody shout it out. How would you tell people where your church is? 
Turn on L- oh, LSU Drive. Y'all had to put it on LSU Drive? I'm from Texas. I'm from Arkansas before that. We lose everything in Arkansas. So I got a chip on my shoulder. You just need to understand that. I came here because I'm from Arkansas with Razorbacks. We blow it every year. So, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. But LSU Drive what? Okay. All right, turn by turn directions. Anybody use landmarks for that? Say it's across from, like in, in Pasadena, our church is across from H-E-B on Fairmont. Anybody else? Something like that? Across from the cemetery? Across from the cemetery? People just dying to get into those cemeteries. So, that's how you tell people where your church is. But here's the thing. It's a trick question. It's a trick question because I set you up for it because the church is not a building. The church is a people. The church is not a building. The church is a people. Now, y'all are saying, I get it. I know it. I understand all that. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. What many of us think automatically in our minds when we describe our church is we think of the location of this facility. So we want to tackle that idea tonight, talk about that just a little bit. If people ask me, uh, our campus that I pastor, CT Pasadena, where is CT Pasadena? My honest answer has to be, listen to me, I don't know. Because unless every single person that considers that their church family is all gathered in one place at one time, nobody's sick or missing. That is the only way, and that is the only time that I can ever tell you the location of the church. Because the church is the people. Right now, I have no clue where they are. There's some of them that are there tonight for a youth service. But there's a bunch of them scattered all over the Houston area. I don't know where they are. I don't know. Did you realize if somebody says to you, hey, let's go to church, do you realize that they're asking you to do something that is physically impossible? Think about it. You cannot go to church. It is impossible to do so. Why? Because you already are the church. You can't go to church because you already are the church. And it's not a surprise, and yet every one of us in this room, our natural default is to describe, and even I do this, when I say I'm going to the church, everybody knows that I'm going to the Pasadena campus, I'm probably going to the office to work, but that's the language that I use. Why? This is the way that we have been conditioned to do things and talk about things for years. And you may think it's a small thing, but it's actually a big thing. I'm going to show you why it matters. Because language creates culture, and culture creates behaviors. Our language creates culture, and then our culture creates behaviors. How many of you ever heard the story that Zig Ziglar tells about the ham that had the end of the, of the ham cut off of you? Y'all guys heard that story? I'm probably going to mess it up if you've heard it before. But this is the story. Zig Ziglar talks about the story. That there was a lady who goes to the butcher shop. Her husband is with her. Or she's actually at the grocery store. They go to the, the counter there in the meat department. And she's picking up a ham. And she asks the guy behind the counter if he would cut the end off the ham. And her husband's confused. He said, why did you do that? She said, well, I don't know. My mom always did that. So I'm cutting the end off the ham. Well, her mom actually happened to be visiting with them while that evening. And so when they got home from the grocery store, he said to his mother-in-law, hey, why is it that you cut the end off the ham? Because my wife is doing that. She doesn't even know why she's doing it. And she said, well, I actually don't know. My mom always did that. I'm like, what is going on here? So they get grandma on the phone and say, hey, grandma, can you explain to us why you cut the end off the ham? We're all cutting the end off the ham. She said, honey, I don't know why you cut the end off the ham, but my roaster was too small. Here's the thing. We do things and we don't even understand why we do them. And we just go through the motions a lot of time, but it's important. It's important for us to understand why we do what we do. We go to church, quote unquote, because it's what we've always done. We go to church. We dress a certain way. 
We carry our Bibles. We listen politely. Hopefully y'all do that today. Um, and then we leave. We go home. And we think it's always been this way. But it actually hasn't been always, always been this way. So let's, let's dig into it just a little bit tonight and see what Jesus intended for the church in his blueprint. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles, uh, but it'll be there on, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 is where we'll pick it up. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? That's a really important question. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell in other translations, will not overcome it, or as other translations say, will not prevail against it. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will build my what? Except that's not what he said. It's a bad translation. I'm going to show you why. Now, church in this verse is actually not a good word to translate that. Let me show you the etymology or the, the tracing backward of some words. The word church comes from the German word kirch or kirsche. You say it both, word, both ways. That word kirch actually comes from the Greek. The Greek word is kuriakos. And if you want to look that up in your Bible or in a, uh, some type of reference where you can reference Strong's numbers, the Strong's number is 2960. Like, uh, you already lost me. I don't care anymore. Okay, this is important. So hang with me. We're going to get into some weeds for just a little bit. We'll come, come right back out, okay? So hang on. Just pay attention. Write some notes. You can tell Pastor Chris you don't like me. Don't ever have me come back. So kuriakos is the meaning... Translated for us is when it talks about things that belong to the Lord, the Lord's house. You guys, we've heard us call the church that, right? The Lord, something that belongs to the Lord. Now, that word is used many times in the New Testament. One time that it's used in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, when Paul is talking about the Lord's supper. The word and one variant of it is used in that verse of the word kuriakos. Revelation 1, 20, John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Same thing. 700 times this word and its variants are used in the New Testament. Over 700 times. Every single time this word, kuriakos, is used in the Greek, it is translated Lord or Master. Lord or Master. And yet, here in this verse, when Jesus said, I will build my church, the word in English is completely substituted in for what Jesus was talking about. Now, we can continue using the word church to describe our church as long as we know what we're talking about. So what was Jesus saying? If Jesus had said, listen to this, if Jesus had said, upon this rock I will build my kuriakos, the word church would have been a perfect translation into English. But that's not what he said. He said this, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. Upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. This is Strong's number 1577. Now, let me show you what this is all about. 
He said this, because if, if we can understand what the ecclesia is, it's, it's going to be an incredible revelation to us tonight to apply to our lives. Let's break it down. The word ecclesia comes from two Greek words. The first one is ek, which means out from, and kaleo, which means to call. What Jesus was saying is, I'm going to build my called out ones upon the rock of revelation that I am the Messiah. So once you understand who I am, I become the cornerstone of a thing that I'm building, and it's not a church, it's an ecclesia. It's a group of people that I'm calling out of the world to do something. What was that? What was he talking about? The ecclesia in that day, his disciples knew exactly what he was talking about. Because in the government of, in the city of Athens, the ecclesia was the governing, ruling body. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to establish a government in a group of people that I call out the, of the world. I'm calling out a group of people for a particular purpose, a congregation that are convened for a particular reason. And here's the reason. You ready? To rule and revolutionize the world. I'm starting, this is what Jesus is saying in this verse, I'm starting a revolution, guys. Upon this rock that I am the Christ, I'm going to transform the entire world with a group of people that get this idea that I am the Christ. I'm going to change the world. In the Old Testament, the word is different, but it, it translates over to ecclesia. The Old Testament represents a group of people that were convened to prepare battle plans. The disciples knew what he was talking about because they lived in that culture. You and I didn't live in that culture. He said, wait, wait, wait. The disciples are thinking, hang on a minute. This guy is getting ready to establish his government. He's going to use us in his government. That's why they, were, they continue to be confused. Because remember, the people of that day thought that Jesus was going to set up a physical throne and overthrow Rome. And they're like, hey, can one of my boys sit on either side of you, Jesus? They didn't quite understand all the way to when Jesus ascended into heaven. They thought it was going to be a physical government. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to establish a government, but it's not going to be in a physical place. It's going to be in the hearts of men. And I need you to be a part of that army that transforms the world and does something about the condition of the hearts of people. I'm sending you as my ruling and reigning and influential people that are going to revolutionize the world. They knew he wasn't talking about a building. He said, I will build my governing body called out to purpose. And it will be, because we understand who we are, it will be so powerful that the gates or the authority of hell has no power to stop it. Because they know who they are. They can't stop it. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the, revolution that, or the re revelation we need to understand tonight. Most of the church is afraid of hell. You start talking about the devil and demons are like, oh, let's not talk about that. I wonder if the devil, he's going he's to do some crazy stuff. Most of the church is afraid of hell. But hell is afraid of the church figuring out they're the ecclesia. Because once we understand who it is that Jesus means for us to be, it transforms the way we think about everything. It transforms every action, every thought, every deed, the way we live our lives. It's completely different. Why? Because the ecclesia had only one agenda. Listen to me, church. The ecclesia just had one agenda. Advancing the kingdom of God. That's all that was on their minds. They had allegiance to no other king. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 17, they were even accused... Of this, they said, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, the one called Jesus. They used their own philosophy of living life 
against them. It said they're professing allegiance to another king. These people are troublemakers. They're stirring up issues in the world. We need to shut them down. Why did the church face so much persecution? Because a band of people were on mission to change the world. They understood who they were supposed to be. See, their concern wasn't who was on the throne of Rome. Their concern wasn't who was going to get elected in the election at the White House. They weren't concerned if it was a Democrat or a Republican because they had a higher king that his throne was going to endure forever. Listen, tonight, whether the United States rises, falls, or crumbles, you need to understand you and I serve a king that is forever. We are in an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. And they got this. They're like, we don't have time for stuff like this. We're changing the world. We're not distracted by social policy. We're going to fix social policy. We're changing people's lives left and right. Can you see the threat to the institutions of the day? Can you see the threat to the religious systems of the day? People were scared to death of the ecclesia because these people had no other loyalties, no other desires, only one agenda. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done through this guy. They were on task. They were on mission. And because this idea was so strong, they didn't see themselves as saints in a church. They saw themselves as soldiers in a revolution. And because of that, they endured hardship and persecution and prison and beatings, even martyrdom. They didn't care. This is just what prisoners of war go through. We're okay with whatever happens to us because we've got a military engagement that we're involved in. We're not fighting people. We're fighting the devil, and we're advancing the cause of Jesus. They didn't care what it cost them. Only one agenda. They continued unfazed and unstoppable because they were not sitting saints. They were marching soldiers. The ecclesia was so powerful and so pure and so radical that it turned the world upside down. They did not go to church. They were the church. They got rid of the idea of going to church. They were not building buildings. They were establishing Christ's government in the hearts of men. Sid Roth says it like this. He says, they weren't church builders in the sense that we may have thought of them. They weren't advocating people now find some place where they can be separate and not influence anyone around them meeting for a few hours on the weekend, and singing a few songs, hearing a message, and then going home. These men were kingdom builders. They were dethroning Caesar and the whole Roman governmental structure with its empire class structure in the minds of the people. They were changing the world. Rapidly, quickly changing the world because they were the ecclesia. So, if that was what was happening, what has happened to the church? Why has the church lost its punch in the world? Why has the church lost its power? Why has the church lost its fervor? Where did we get this idea that we go to church? Where did, where did all this stuff come from? Why did it happen? Why do we think church is a building? Where does those ideas come from in our mind? Here's, here's the Old Testament pattern. You have to remember, when you read your Bible, if we don't differentiate between the Old Testament and the New Testament, even you and I get stuck in thinking. Okay? So the Old Testament pattern was this. There were holy places and there was a house of God. Y'all remember that? Holy places. When there was a, an event that happened, such as the burning bush or something like that, that place became holy, sacred, dedicated unto God. It was a place. They built altars and memorials. This happened right here. This is where I encountered God. I wrestled with Him all night. I can't walk straight anymore. This is, this is something that happened. This is a holy place. Remember that when you come. This place is holy. And then we remember that Moses, when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, 
And they were, in the, they were in the wilderness. They built a tent or a tabernacle or a temple for God. It became God's house, didn't it? He dwelled in the middle of that house. Then, fast forward a few years, David and Solomon together, David envisions it, and Solomon completes it and says, we need to build not a tent for God, a, a, a temporary house. We need a permanent house for God. And so they build a building, and God stays in the building. Y'all remember this? And so the unthinkable happens. Here's, first of all, here's what happens. To worship God, the people of Israel, where did they have to go? Y'all talk to me. Y'all still with me? Did I lose you? Kind of coming out of the weeds a little bit, I promise. Where did they go? They had to go to the temple, right? It doesn't matter how far you live away from Jerusalem. You got to go. That's where you worship God. That's where you got to do the sacrifice. You got to go where God lives. You got to go to the house of the Lord. You got to go to the Lord's house. You got to go to the house of God. He's way over there. That's where he lives. Sorry. Sorry, it's an inconvenience. You should have moved closer. And in 586, the unthinkable happened. Nebuchadnezzar II destroyed the temple. If you read in your Bible and you read in history, you hear the lament. The house of God is destroyed. The temple of God is destroyed. Oh, that we could rebuild the temple of God. We need this to happen. And guess what? The temple is restored. In 515 B.C., it's rebuilt once again. And now again, the people of Israel have a house of the Lord to go to to worship God. You have to go to the house of God to worship God. Go to the building. Now we fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is speaking prophetically in Matthew chapter 24. We have a division now. Jesus is on the scene. There's a new way of thinking, and he says this about the temple. Do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. He's talking about the temple. It's going to be destroyed. And he's not freaked out about it. He's not stressed out at all. In fact, there's a whole conversation that he has with a lady, and she's wanting him to settle a dispute and tell me, hey, could you explain to me the whole the whole thing, because there's a dilemma between the people that believe what you believe and the people that believe what I believe. Tell me, where are we going to go worship God? Can you settle this for me, Jesus? It's the woman at the well. She asked him, can you settle this dispute? Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, what? Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Why? Because the temple of God was no longer going to be necessary. The building was not going to be needed to worship God. The temple would be destroyed. Don't worry about it. You guys remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? When he said it is finished, the veil was torn in the most holy place. And if you look inside, you're like, wait a second. God's not there anymore. Where did he go? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Don't you realize you have been made the temple now? Here's what that word is. The temple in Greek is the word naos, and here's what it means. It's the most holy place. Guys, you're not the outer court. You're not the holy place. You are the holy of holies. God himself lives in you. He's not in this building. He's in this one. And see, the Old Testament pattern was holy places 
and a house of God. But the New Testament pattern now is holy people who are the house of God. And this is a really big deal. I'm getting somewhere we're going to land, I promise. Here's what you need to understand today. This is why you cannot go to the house of God. You cannot go to the house of God because you already are the house of God. You're where He lives. He goes with you everywhere that you are. When we say, when we say, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord today? We're actually making a mistake, aren't we? It's actually, wait, we're like, did you have an out-of-body experience all week? You're just like back in your house today? What? We don't understand. Why? Because we're thinking this, this is the, because the Old Testament, where? Guess what? God lived here. And we fall, I'm telling you, we fall into that pattern of thinking still today. You know, want to know why I can tell you that? Because if I brought a TV up here and watched some of the shows that you and I watch in our homes, you'd be offended. You can't watch that in the sanctuary, pastor. This is a holy place. No, no, no. When we watched it at our house, we already watched it in the sanctuary. This place is not sacred. I tell people about Pasadena. It's got really high ceilings. I mean, make, this would make a great office complex. This would make a great car lot. There is nothing special about this building. There's something sacred about it because you and I have an experience with God in this room. But it is nothing more than brick and mortar. The temple of God no longer exists made of human hands. It exists in here. It is moved. And we are the sacred place of God. Why is that an important idea? Because as long as we think that this place is holy and this place is not, then we will behave our lives with duplicity. We will act one way in church and we'll act another way when we go out there. Because you can't act like that in church. You want to know one of the primary reasons why people say they don't go to church? is because the church is full of hypocrites. Because we think this place is where God resides. We come in here, we got well, we to act proper because God's here. No, God's, God's here because you're here. He leaves when you leave. I mean, God is everywhere. But you're carrying him wherever you go. Listen to me. Wherever you go, God shows up. Because you take him into all those places. He is in you. He is in you. It's important because it is who we are, not where we go. Wherever you are, there are God. There God is. There are no holy places, only holy people. The ecclesia. And here's where it really begins to come down, and we start to land and understand this. We have to understand that there are no part-time church people. You don't come to church for an hour on Wednesday night and an hour on Sunday morning. You are the church wherever you are. Second mile leader begins, second mile leadership begins with this foundation. This idea that 24-7, 365, we are the church. Everywhere that we are. You cannot go to church because you are church. The language is subtle, but the implications are huge. See, we forget we are the temple. We live this double standard. But the ecclesia, those that Jesus called to himself... In the New Testament, they knew who they were. They were full-time Christians. They were full-time on the purpose of God. They had been re-identified and re-categorized. They're in a new nation. They had one purpose, to advance the kingdom's cause. 
And they were unstoppable. But there's always a draw to establish a holy place. A temple. There's always a draw to that. And guess what? For, for 300 years, the church endured persecution. For 300 years. And then this guy Constantine comes along. And answers their prayers. God, please end this persecution. Please end where my friends and my family are being murdered and killed and martyred for the cause of Christ. And Constantine comes along and in 313 AD, he issues the Edict of Milan and he decriminalizes Christian worship. Thank you, God, for answering our prayers. But it was the death toll of the church, the ecclesia. Why? Because in 380 AD, he got a better idea. I know what I'll do. I'll make the church and state the same thing. And I'll build the Christians a temple. And they called it the church. The ecclesia changed when Constantine gave us the church. Their prayers were answered, but the ecclesia, the movement, was about to die and become a kuriakos, a building. Constantine gave, the, gave them a church, and we call it the house of the Lord. Do you see how subtle and how important that idea is? That we have to understand who we are. The building gave Christians a place to go rather than a people to be. The mission of the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel became the idea of come together in a building again. And the remnant of that remains even today. Remember how we described the location of our church? We said it's right here. I do the same thing. We don't think of ourselves as a missional movement, but a building. A holy place where we go, and the implication then becomes that we are part-time followers of God. There's no significant implications to our daily life. And as a result, here's what I have found in our church, and I don't know if it's the same in yours or not, but here's what I found in our church, is that Christians typically don't pray. They don't read the Bible. They don't spend their life thinking about the cause of Jesus in the world. Instead, what we do is we show up to church and let somebody else feed us a sermon or a lesson. And we say, that was good, Pastor. I appreciate the word tonight. Now I'm going to go back to my regular life. And we go back to secular jobs because we don't realize that job is sacred because we're on mission. Few people understand what it means to be a disciple, an ambassador, a soldier. They don't understand what being the ecclesia means. Jesus didn't want us to go to church. He wanted us to take over the world. Listen, it's fine for us to gather in this building, and I'm all for it. And I'm not telling you that you shouldn't come, because if I do that, Pastor Chris is going to be really upset with me. That's not what I'm saying. We should get together in here. But when we leave here, our mission doesn't end. It starts. Like I say, I'm probably already preached, I'm just preaching to the choir tonight. The people that already believe this stuff, but you should tell somebody else. The people that aren't here tonight. Jesus wanted a movement, a 24-7, 365 group of people that were the ecclesia that were consumed with only one thing. The cause of Jesus Christ. What is the application of this? Pastor, am I supposed to quit my job? Pastor, am I, 
how do I, how do, I do that? How do I be a full-time? Is everybody supposed to be in the ministry? How does this work? Here's the questions I want to ask you as I'm closing tonight. What if we realize that we really are the missional band of God's people? What would change about our lives? If we really got this idea in us. See, the foundation of the second mile is already laid because we realize, wait, 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 wait. You're asking me to be a second mile leader. You're asking me to go the extra mile. You're asking me to do all these other things. I'm already there because I just changed my mindset tonight that I, I'm not part-time. I'm full-time. I'm all the time for Jesus. What if we thought, hey, there's no ruler in our lives besides God. There's no agenda in our lives other than the kingdom. What if all of our life was centered around one goal? Advance Christ's kingdom. That we were always looking for opportunities to bring divine presence to daily life. I got God in me. It's going to be wherever I am. Do you know that there are places that you can go that Pastor Chris will never ever be able to set his foot? And yet, because you are there, you have already infiltrated society with the kingdom of God. If you just let it out, it's in you. You just let God out. Here's a question. What if we were soldiers looking for a fight instead of sheep looking to be fed? Pastor Chris, I'm needing a word tonight. I need you to download something to me. I need, I'm starting. It's Wednesday. I haven't read my Bible. I haven't prayed. I haven't done anything you told me to do on Sunday. But if you could just feed me one more time, I'd really appreciate it. What if we changed our mindset? Wait, it's not his job to feed me. It's my job to feed my... In fact, it's my job to be feeding people around me. So I better be spending time with Jesus every morning before I go to work. Because I need to be full of God, full of the Holy Spirit, and ready to overflow on somebody around me. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Jesus left. He didn't leave a church. He left an ecclesia. If you believed that you were called to... No other purpose than expanding the kingdom of God. What would you change? Would you think about it tonight? What if you believed that you were called into full-time ministry? I got a clue for you. You are. That's part of this teaching as well. Part of it that comes later in the course. But you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just a guy that has the credentials and the title that stands on this stage. You are a full-time minister of the gospel. You just do it in the workplace. What would you change in your life? How would you view your workplace if you realized, I'm actually a missionary of God, which the Bible actually says we're his ambassador, so we're representing his kingdom, not our kingdom, but that's a whole other thing. How would you view your workplace? How would you view the marketplace? How would you view your time? How would you view, dare I say it, your money? Because God has given you this time, Talent, I love what Pastor Chris said. Our time, talent, our resources. And we invest in people's lives that earns us the right to have something to say. What if you realize, God, I've got all this stuff and the reason you've given it to me is so I can put somebody in your family and they'll show up in heaven with me. This stuff is going to burn up in the world. I'm going to leave it behind. I'm going to give it to some kids that probably don't know what to do with it and they're probably just going to sell it in a garage sale anyway. But I can use this stuff. I can use that boat. Thank you, God, for that boat. I can use that boat to take my friend out on the lake and talk to him about what God is doing in my life. What if everything in your life you saw as a resource to advance the kingdom? You'd be a second mile leader. Person that is going above and beyond expectations. Ephesians 1.23 and the message says it like this. I love it. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world on the side. The world is peripheral to the church. You and I in the ecclesia 
Jesus and his kingdom are the center of our universe. And we just happen to be in the world. But the problem with Christians, because we don't understand that we're the ecclesia, we're using God's resources and God's time and God's energy that he's given us for purpose in this world to build our kingdom, not his. But the world is just in the periphery. I just happen to be here to advance something for Jesus. If God is done with the world, listen to this. We believe that Jesus is coming back for his bride, right? His church. He's going to take us out of here. So let me ask you the question, why hasn't he? Peter tells us that God is not slow considering that promise as some would say. But he is patient because he's waiting for some more people to get saved. And guess who he's left here to get them saved? So if the work of God was done in the world, we'd be out of here. But that means there's still work for us to do. And it's not Pastor Chris's job. I'm just going to tell you, it's his job to equip you to go do it. That's one of the reasons I'm here tonight, because his job is to equip you to go do it. It's actually all of our jobs. And the reason the church is not advancing and revolutionizing the world is because we've forgotten who we are. We're the ecclesia. The church has to be the church. This is not manipulation. I'm not trying to manipulate you or trying to say, man, you need to be up here at the church 24-7. No, you need to be where God has put you, exactly where you put you, but you just need to change your perspective. I'm on mission. Every single moment of every single day. It's not manipulation, but it's alignment to Jesus' purpose for your life. Everywhere you set your foot is territory for you to take for Christ. We are in the world for the purpose of the kingdom. Until we become the ecclesia, we will not be what Jesus intended to build. If people under severe persecution, the early church, with minimal resources could revolutionize their world. What is our excuse in the United States of America? We have everything we could possibly need. I'm calling you the purpose and plan of God in your life. I'm calling you back to the intention of Christ to be the ecclesia. If we become the ecclesia, hell will not be able to stop us. I pray tonight that you will become discontent with going to a Kuriakos and start being the ecclesia. It's not good enough to just be in this building anymore. The church has been sitting in buildings long enough. It's time to march into the world. We've been distracted long enough by the desires of the world. I need that. I want that. I need that. Blinded to God's purpose in our lives long enough. It's time to become the ecclesia. And this is the heartbeat. This is the pulse of Second Mile Leaders. This is one of my favorite teachings. I know it's a little, little weedy. This is my favorite teaching because we have to understand what Jesus meant when he said, I'll build my church. This is the heart of Second Mile Leadership, to understand that we are the ecclesia. And so this is what I tell you and leave you with tonight. It's, stop. it's time to stop going to the church and start being the church. Can I pray for you tonight? Father, I thank you for this incredible group of people, and I'm honored.